Morning, everyone. Wasn't it good this morning to see the young boys up the front, Jay and Kai and Elijah, with uh, Ruth mentoring them? And, uh, you know, within this group, we've got Glenn, who comes from Bendigo, and we've got Jeff, who comes from Geelong, <laughs> and, of course, we've got Shauna and uh, Rose, who'll do anything at any time. But these guys give up their time, very committed each week. They not only have to get here at 8.30 on a Sunday morning from Bendigo and Geelong, but they're here on Saturday as well, rehearsing. So give them a word of thanks afterwards. And, uh, and uh, make sure you thank the boys when they come down from upstairs as well. We're very fortunate to have younger ones coming through. Well, this morning we continue our theme on being church. What does it mean to be church? What did God intend for his church? And how are we stacking up against what was intended? And we've been looking at some of the great metaphors in the Bible that are used to describe the church. And we've had a look at the church as Christ's bride. And we've also had a look at the church as the vineyard of God. And both of those metaphors are rich in imagery and meaning and they're two very much loved uh, descriptions of the church that have retained all of their beauty down through the years um, until today. Today's metaphor probably needs a little bit more polish uh, because it is one that unfortunately has become seriously tarnished and stained over the years, such that it is now very difficult for us to imagine what it might mean to be a holy and royal priesthood. You know, if we're honest, perhaps this is something like what most of us think of when we think of priests. We think of solemn-faced men dressed in robes. We think of celibacy. We think of the Catholic Church. And then, unfortunately, for many of us, our minds now make the mental, Im mental jump from that to this. All the tragic images of victims of abuse, public protests, pedophile priests being dragged in front of the courts. The office of priest has been tarnished, perhaps irreparably, and like it or not, I think this has adversely affected our own image of ourselves as a priesthood of believers. The church as the bride of Christ. That's beautiful. That's something we all want to be part of. The vineyard of God. Yes, we're all happy to be part of that too. But priests? These days, most of us want to remove ourselves as far away as possible from that horribly tarnished image for very good reason. Because it is associated in the minds of so many out in the wider community with unending torment, with stolen childhoods. And a very great injustice has been done, not only to the victims and their families, but also to the church. This imagery of the church as a priesthood is every bit as beautiful and as packed with meaning as that of the vineyard or the bride, but it has largely been stolen from the church by those who should have been its greatest caretaker. 
So will you turn with me now to our passage for today as we seek to reclaim some of what was intended for us in this imagery. So we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. One Peter two, four to ten. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, see. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, it didn't take long after I accepted this position here at Pathway for my extended family's WhatsApp group to start buzzing with the news. And news reached to the London-based part of my family and their comments came back, Caroline, we hear you're becoming a priest. Well. I can tell you I was very quick to put them right and to explain the difference between a priest and a pastor, perhaps a little too quick. Had I given it a bit more thought, a better response might have been, no, I've been a priest for over 30 years and I intend sticking with it, I'm just adding some pastoral responsibilities. But then again, that might have completely confused them. Most people find it pretty easy to describe whatever it is that they're doing for a living. I'm a cleaner, I clean hotel rooms. I'm a waitress, I wait tables. I'm an accountant, I deal with figures all day. I'm a stay-at-home mum, my job is to look after the children. I'm a dentist, I pull teeth. I'm a seamstress, I sew. And for others, sometimes the reality of what their job actually entails is quite different to what maybe they thought it would be. Um, the creator of um, the Dilbert cartoons recently asked his readers to describe their jobs in a single sentence. Here are some of the responses he got. See if you can figure out which job they're describing. One man said, my job is to spend most of the day sitting down looking out of the window. He's a pilot. <laughs> Another person said, and my apologies to anyone who's had to use the services of such a person, my job is to ensure that stupid people remain in the gene pool. He was a lifeguard. 
And my personal favourite, having worked with many of these people in the public service, my job is to show up, even though nobody called me, and get paid for an answer they already knew to a question they never asked. That person was a consultant. If you're doing a job every day, it's generally not that hard to describe it. Even if that job is not really what you thought it was going to be when you were uh, studying for that sort of career. So my question to you is, what about the role of priest? All of you are supposed to be doing that job every day. Can you describe it? You should know it inside out because you're doing it every day. But if your family or friends asked you, how well could you describe that job? So we're going to explore that a little bit today. And to appreciate exactly what was intended for us being a holy and a royal priesthood, we're going to go back to where Peter draws his, ex uh, his inspiration. And some of you might remember that some months ago I told you that my favourite book of the Bible was actually Exodus. And that's because I believe if you want to understand the New Testament, the book of Exodus is a really great place to start because so much of the New Testament has its roots back in Exodus. And today's passage is a case in point. And so we need to go right back to the Exodus account. Instructions for the anointing of Aaron and his sons as priests, and indeed the first mention of the priesthood, occurs at the very end of the book of Exodus. Now, Exodus is not the first place where priests are mentioned, but it is the first place where we have some detailed instructions about their duties. Now, Aaron was the first high priest of Israel, and his descendants from the tribe of Levi served Israel as priests, and their role was twofold. They were firstly to represent the people of God, before God, by making sacrifices to atone for their sins. Because it was generally accepted that the sin of the people would prevent them from coming before a holy God. Secondly, they were to represent God to the people by mediating God's forgiveness and blessings towards those whose sins had been atoned for. And so in this way, the role of the priest was to assist the people to live in a right relationship with God. And isn't that exactly what Jesus calls us to do when he tells us to go and make disciples? Now, we're not Levitical priests descended from Aaron, and we'll never need to make animal sacrifices because, of course, Jesus Christ brought an end to all of that by his own perfect sacrifice. And as Christians, our priestly line is a much more royal one than that of Aaron. As Christians, we're called to be priests in the line of Christ, a truly holy and royal priesthood. And whilst thankfully for vegetarians like myself, we're not ever going to be called upon to make animal sacrifices, we are called upon to sacrifice ourselves in order that the forgiveness and blessings of God might be extended to those who are yet to receive them. So we might be called to sacrifice some of our leisure or family time to help others in need. We might be called to sacrifice some of our income earning potential 
so that we can serve God in a voluntary capacity. We might be called to sacrifice our relationships with some people in order to make a stand for the things of God. We might be called to sacrifice all that is familiar and comfortable and secure in order to heed the call of God on our lives. All of us are called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, because this is our spiritual act of worship. Now, while there are many useful lessons we can learn about our role as priests from studying Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, the language that was used by Peter in the passage that we just read isn't found in that Exodus description of the consecration of Aaron and his role of priest. To find it, we need to keep going back a little bit further. Back to the point at which God has miraculously brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. They've just walked across the Red Sea on dry ground and watched as the Egyptians pursuing them have been buried in a watery grave when, when God closed the sea in around them. The Israelites have continued on in their journey. God's provided water, God's provided food, God's provided more water. Onwards they've travelled till they've reached the desert of Sinai in the third month after leaving Egypt. And they come here to the mountain and I'm going to read you the account from Exodus 19 that's depicted here in this picture. Exodus 19, 1 to 6. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now the people agree to enter the covenant in verse 8 when they respond together that we will do everything the Lord has said. Moses takes their answer back to God and the covenant is confirmed and a few chapters later in chapter 24 it's confirmed by the offering of sacrifices. And so the obvious question that must be asked at this point is why priests? Would it not have been enough for Israel to have been God's treasured possession? Or even his treasured possession and a holy nation, treasured and set apart or holy, both wonderful things to be in the eyes of God, but why priests? This is a job description that we need to look at a little further. What was the original intention for this kingdom of priests? And to find out, we have to go back much further. So these are the things here. I've 
put down that, that God did in, in that speech. And now we need to go a little bit further back, right back to the book of Genesis. The job description God has given to Moses for the Israelites has its genesis way back in a promise given to Abram. Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so we begin to see in Exodus the outworking of that promise. God is making Israel into a great nation. He is pouring out his blessing onto them, making them his treasured possession and a nation set apart for him. And here in Genesis, he also promises Abram that it won't just be Israel that is blessed through them. All people on earth will be blessed. And that, in a nutshell, is the original job description for the role of priest, to be an agent of God's blessing to the people. So God's people have been told that they're to be a kingdom of priests, and we know from Genesis that this has something to do with being an agent of God's blessing to the people. How are they to fulfill that role? Well, God told them in verse 5 of our Exodus reading that their being a kingdom of priests depended on them obeying him fully. He then goes on in subsequent chapters to provide the law and to explain it using some case studies. So if being priests depends on their obedience and if what they are to obey is the law, then it follows, doesn't it, that somewhere within those laws is the basic priestly mandate for this kingdom of priests. Now the next four chapters of the book of Exodus are taken up with the law, beginning with the Ten Commandments and further detailed in the specific case examples of those principles that happen in the chapters following. So here then is the basic priestly mandate in summary form, which we know of as the Ten Commandments. Now many of you, I'm sure, would have learned these in Sunday school and you probably would have learned in Sunday school that they can be divided into two basic groups. There's the first group that deals with reverence for God and the second group that deals with how Israel was to treat one another and live peacefully in community together. And so we see here that God's community, his kingdom of priests, was to be characterised by their reverence for him and by the way in which they lived together in community. This would mark them out as God's treasured possession, set apart for him and a holy nation. And it was by this that all of the other peoples, all of the other nations would be drawn to Israel's God and in this way all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Sounds great, doesn't it? But unfortunately, of course, it's not what happened. So here then is a summary of what happened to Israel as a nation of priests. So chapter 19 of Exodus, we have that if-then statement. If you obey, then you will be a kingdom of priests. 
Chapters 20 to 23, the laws are given and explained. Chapter 24, the covenant is confirmed with a blood sacrifice. Chapters 25 to 31 have further instructions about the tabernacle, about the priestly robes. Um, and then in chapter 32, the wheels kind of fall off the whole situation. Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets of law in his hands to find that this nation of priests have managed to convince Aaron, who is soon to be their high priest, to build them an idol, the golden calf. There's a bit of a reprieve at the end of the book of Exodus where things for a time get back on track, the people repent. But if you read on through Kings, Chronicles and the Prophets, pretty soon it becomes evident that as a nation of priests, Israel was a failure. So let's look at the priestly line of Aaron. If we put aside that giant stumble with the golden calf, how did they fare? Well... In Exodus 24, we see Moses, Aaron, and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, along with the 70 elders of Israel, invited to share this covenant meal with God. And what an amazing experience that must have been because we're told that they saw the God of Israel. And in, in that chapter, chapter 24, there's a description of what they saw. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. And we're told, but God did not raise a hand against these leaders. They saw God and they ate and they drank. Can you imagine what an enormous privilege that must have been for them? Chapters 28 and 29 give instructions for the priestly garments. Chapter 40 of Exodus, instructions are given for the anointing of Aaron and his sons as priest. Jump ahead a bit to the book of Leviticus, chapter 8. Aaron and his sons are ordained for service. Chapter 9, they begin their service. Chapter 10, two of them are dead because of their disobedience. Struck down by the Lord, these very same two who had not that long ago shared a covenant meal and seen God, now struck down dead. And so we see a giant priestly problem because here we have a sinful high priest and his sinful sons mediating for a disobedient nation before a holy God. It was a system that from the outset was completely flawed by sin. Fortunately, God had a better plan and a better high priest, of course, Jesus Christ, who could never be tainted by sin. Under that first covenant, the priests were responsible for interceding on behalf of the people by offering the many sacrifices required by the law. And from among these priests, one was chosen who would be the high priest. And his most important duty happened on the annual day of atonement. When, after entering the holy place within the tabernacle to make um, amends or atonement for his own sins and the sins of the other priests, he could then um, cross through that curtain there into the most holy place or the holy of holies where the divine presence of God dwelt with the people. It was there that he would atone for the sins of the people by making sacrifice and by confessing those sins over a 
a goat, which would then be released into the wilderness, the scapegoat. The writer of Hebrews says of this practice, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So the priests of Aaron's line had to do this again and again and again, every day, every year. But with Christ, it was once and for all. And it's under this high priest that we can serve, in spite of our own sin, today. So what can we learn from all of this history about our roles today as priests? If there was a basic job description, would you fit the bill? Now, I've had a bit of a go at creating a basic job description from what we've discussed this morning. So let's see how we measure up. Now, position descriptions always have some essential prerequisites. Well, at least the ones that I used to write always did. These are also known as don't bother applying if you haven't got this because without it, you're not going to be suitable for the job. And I can tell you it's astounding how many people apply for jobs when they have zero qualifications for the job. I used to advertise science jobs and we'd get accountants applying and all sorts of people who had no science background whatsoever in spite of a science degree being the basic essential prerequisite. Now for the role of priest, there really is only one essential prerequisite and that is to be a member of the right family. Now under the old covenant, this meant, of course, that you were to be one of Aaron's descendants. But under the new covenant, all of us who are children of God through faith in Christ are part of the right family. If you are a Christian, you meet the essential prerequisites, not because of anything you've done, but because through Christ you have been born into royal lineage. You qualify for the royal priesthood. Now, position descriptions also usually have a number of personal attributes that are important for the job. And in this respect, the most important personal attribute is a high regard for the holiness of God. The sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, were careless in the conduct of their duties and they paid for this carelessness with their lives. And their example demonstrates for all who would follow that then, just as now, priestly service is not something to be taken lightly. In the New Testament, you might recall a similar incident shortly after Pentecost. This time it was Ananias and Sapphira, struck dead by God for lying to the church. The Old Testament example comes immediately after the Mosaic Covenant has been confirmed. The priesthood under Aaron has just been initiated the New Testament example comes immediately after the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The early church has just been initiated. In both cases, God has ushered in a new era and these deaths stand as a shocking reminder 
to the ancient priests of Israel and to the priesthood of all believers in our churches today that the holiness of God is not something to be taken lightly. We need to have it at the forefront of our minds and we must be careful not to approach our role as priests casually or, or flippantly. Our God is holy and through Christ we are to be holy and set apart for him and our actions should always reflect his holiness. We are a holy priesthood. So what are some of our duties? Well, priests should minister to God and man and be an agent of God's blessing to the people. For the Israelites as a nation of priests, specific instructions were given to them as to how they might do this by obeying the law as it had been laid out for them. And as we've already seen, the law dealt with how they should relate to God and how they should relate to one another in community. From the Israelites then, we learn that how we live as priests matters very much because others are watching us. Moses said to the Israelites of these instructions, observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. That comes from his speech in Deuteronomy chapter 4. You see, when the Israelites obeyed the commands they had been given, other nations would take notice and would draw the conclusion that surely the God of this wise and understanding nation must himself be wise and understanding. How you act reflects how people think of your God. And it follows then that those who would call, when those who would call themselves priests act contrary to these laws, the nations might rightly ask, what sort of God are they following? Israel was supposed to be a shining light to the nations. Instead, all too often they adopted the idols and the practices of the nations around them and became virtually indistinguishable from them. As priests, we represent God to the people and most of what we teach the people will not be with what we say. It will be with how we live. And if, apart from the hour or two we spend here on a Sunday morning, there's not much else different about our lives to everyone else, we're failing in our duty as priests because there's no glory to God and no blessing to those around us and God's reputation will be damaged. Now, obviously, pedophile priests abusing children are doing a great deal of damage to our God's reputation, but so too are dishonest Christians in business, arrogant or short-tempered Christian bosses, self-absorbed Christian mums, lazy Christian workers, gossipy Christian friends, proud church leaders, and a whole host of others. How we live and conduct ourselves matters very much because it might be the only Bible that our family and friends ever read. For the priests in the line of Aaron, they were also given specific instructions on how they were to be an agent of God's blessing to the people. And they did this by offering up sacrifices for sin on behalf of themselves and the people and by acting as agents of reconciliation between God and man. And that's how they mediated God's blessing to the people. We, likewise, are to be agents of reconciliation and mediators of God's blessing. But if we look to those Old Testament priests as our example of how we might do this, we're looking 
in the wrong spot because we don't serve under that priestly line. We serve under Christ. And so it is to him, the one who ate with tax collectors, the one who ate with sinners, the one who washed feet and mingled with outcasts and the unclean, that we should look for our example of how to be agents of reconciliation and mediators of God's blessing. Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And those words of Paul stand true today. Now there are generally a few key things that people want to know about a job that they're applying for. And the first of these is often location. Where is this job located? And in this respect, the role of priest is ideally located because it is right wherever you are. Throughout the ages and even today, we find that class systems often pervade our society and sadly, that has also worked its way into the church and warped the truth of the world. Think about our own churchy language. We talk about those called into full-time Christian ministry or those called to the mission field. And what we're often implying by those words, by that language, is that these people are the real ones doing the God-honouring work. And the best anyone else can hope for is to serve God part-time if they can fit him into their spare time outside of their real work. And that is so far removed from the words of Peter that we read today. In the fourth century, a similar paradigm existed, but the root cause was slightly different. Back then, the Roman Emperor Constantine had declared Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. And by this decree, automatically, by default, everyone became a Christian. And so it was very difficult for the real Christians to distinguish themselves from all the other Christians. And so they searched for a way that they might do this. And they did it by taking vows as priests and as nuns and as monks. And this created two problems. Firstly, it set up that two-class system where you had those that worked for the church, the priests, the monks and the nuns, who were considered to be a special class of Christians, higher than everybody else. But it also led to the belief that salvation was something that you earned. Now, one zealous monk threw himself into this work and yet found that all his efforts earned him only a growing sense of his own sinfulness and the futility of his own efforts. After reading carefully the book of Romans, that monk became convicted that salvation comes one way through Christ and Christ alone. That man and his contemporaries had been taught that priests were a class above all other Christians, but the Bible taught them that all believers are priests. It was a life-changing, mind-blowing realisation to that young monk whose name was Martin Luther. 
and it was one that would become a pillar of the Reformation. It became known as the doctrine of vocation. And what it means is that we are all called to serve God as his holy and royal priesthood wherever we are. If you're at school, you serve in the classroom or the schoolyard. If you're in the office, you serve in the office. If you're in a workshop, you serve in the workshop wherever you are. Now, the other key thing that a lot of people want to know about any role they're going to be taking on is what are the benefits? And in this respect, the benefits are mind-blowing because, of course, we have unlimited direct access to Christ. When Christ died on the cross, that curtain that divided the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. And uh, by that, we have unlimited direct access to God. What about the hours? That's an important thing to know about any position you're going to take up. Well, in this respect, there is no flexibility. This position is full-time, ongoing, and there is no option for part-time service. You cannot be a part-time Christian, therefore you cannot be a part-time priest. And it's at this point that my whole analogy starts to fall to pieces because you can leave most other jobs with a few weeks' notice. If you don't like the work, you can simply change. If you can't be bothered, you can simply change. Just give notice and go and find something else. A holy and a royal priest cannot do that because, of course, a priest is not a job. It is our identity in Christ. As a Christian, you can't cease being a priest any more than you can cease being a mother or a father. You may well be a terrible mother or father, but regardless, you have been entrusted with the responsibility of nurturing a young person through life. And so regardless of your background or training, regardless of your occupation, irrespective of whether you mother well or you mother poorly, you will always remain a mother. It is your identity. And so it is for the priesthood of believers. We've all been entrusted with a gr very great responsibility to minister as priests under Jesus, our high priest. We are to glorify God and be agents of his blessing to the nation. That is our collective identity in Christ. So when you leave this place today, you may go back to your homes or your families. You will minister as priests there. Some of us will come back here on Monday and minister as priests here. Others will be sent out to offices, hospitals, schools, probus clubs, workshops, warehouses, homes, shops, restaurants, businesses. Wherever you may find yourself this week, don't lose sight of who you really are. You may well be employed as a secretary or a nurse or a teacher or a mechanic or a doctor or a foreman. Perhaps you might define yourself by your role in your family a mum, a dad, a brother, or your current stage of life, retired, student, working. You may be any or all of these things, but above all of them is your calling to the priesthood of believers. So go and serve God wherever you might be this week. Go and bring glory to God by what you do and what you say. Go and be agents of his blessing to all who are around you. Amen.